Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. As we all progress in our walk with God, one thing will become increasingly obvious, and that is, we're different. We that walk with God are different. And there are going to be two places where you will most recognize this difference, in ourselves and in others. Let me explain. First, you're going to recognize that there's a difference between your new self and your old self. That's the first place you're going to notice the difference in yourself. And then you're going to recognize that there's a difference between your new self and those around you. Now, we're going to look closer at these two comparisons. First of all, let's look at how we're different in ourselves. We think differently than we did before. We feel different than we did before. Our outlook on just about everything has changed. And you know, at first, you may not notice it, but one day you're going to look back and realize that, for example, what once made you happy or satisfied simply doesn't anymore. It's not that you're unhappy. It's just that the source of your happiness is different. If you've accepted Christ into your life and you've decided to nurture your relationship with him through faith and prayer and study of his word, then that part is important. Being saved is one thing, but creating a relationship between you and your Savior is completely different. It is the natural progression. So if you've decided to nurture and enhance and grow in your relationship with him through faith and prayer and study of his word, you'll smile at things you never thought would make you smile. You'll derive joy from that which before would have meant nothing to you. You see things you didn't see before. And you want to know why? Because you actually are different. You've changed. And if you do those things I just mentioned, have faith, pray, study the word, you're not going to be able to stop the change. You will eventually recognize it in yourself because most likely the change will ultimately be dramatic. Hey, John, you sound pretty confident about this. Well, I am confident 
Because not only does God's word say this is going to happen, but I've experienced it myself. I've seen it in myself, and I've seen it in my fellow Christians. It's going to happen to you once Christ gets in you. For instance, for some of you, going out and having a grand time until all hours of the morning was what once made you feel good. If you woke up the next morning unable to remember what happened the night before, you considered that a victory. You used to look forward to that sort of thing. But now, after you've accepted Christ, maybe your friends call and you say, No thanks. Tomorrow's Sunday and I have somewhere to be in the morning. You used to sing the classic disco tune, Thank God It's Friday. Now you've changed it slightly and sing, Thank God It's Sunday. Now, let's face it. At first, you may not tell your friends what you're going to do on Sunday. You may not tell your friends that you're going to go to church, but that's okay. A little change at a time is all right, too. Slowly, perhaps, but it doesn't have to be. Slowly, but it doesn't have to be. Things start to matter to you that didn't before. You care about things and people you never cared about before. You want to know more about Jesus. That's kind of new. Maybe in the past, you've been a regular churchgoer, but probably only because that's what your family always did. But in those days when you just kind of went along with the crowd, it was really nothing more than a task to you. No joy no love, no holy curiosity, just doing what you always did, just doing what everyone else does. But then something happens. For some reason, and there are lots of reasons why this happens, that part's not important, the why is not important. It just happens. At some point, you actually start to see Christ in all of that. Isn't that weird? You're going to church, and now you actually see Christ. He starts to matter to you. Next thing you know, you realize you're sitting in church even when no one made you go. In fact, you kind of look forward to it. That's new, too. Perhaps when you ask the usual crowd, parents, grandparents, etc., if they're going, their answer actually didn't matter because you're going to go anyhow. And before long, you even start to stay after just so that you can talk with some of the other people that find this interesting and wonderful. What's happening here? In fact, you start to find yourself Going to Wednesday night Bible study. You didn't even know that existed before. You probably heard him announce it every Sunday, but it just went in one ear and out the other. Early on, you said, I'm not going Wednesday too. Now you want to go to Wednesday. 
Jesus has actually come into your life and you like it. Now, what's strange about all of this is you start to hear things that you know you've heard before, but somehow they're starting to sound different to you. You start to notice more and more that a verse from Scripture or some sermon actually makes sense. In fact, you think, wow, I actually can, I can use that verse in my own life, or better yet, I think I'm going to share that verse with that friend of mine who seems to be struggling these days. You start actually relating to what the preacher, pastor, or priest, or teacher is talking about. Isn't that weird? You're starting to get it. And you even say, it's coming alive. You've heard people say that before, but it didn't, it didn't make sense. Now you're saying it as well. Christ is coming alive. And all of this happens when he comes into your heart. And now you remember how that happens, right? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, Ephesians 3.17. When you start to exercise faith, when you start to hand over the control of your life to him, he sets up residence in your heart. And when Christ dwells in your heart, you are going to change. Now, the important thing to remember here is that this change is not a result of you changing yourself. It's a result of him in you. I mean, let's face it. He had to come because we can't change ourselves, no matter how hard we try. And believe me, that's going to actually be your first reaction once you come to the realization of what he's done for you, what's happened to you, you're going to start noticing that you're a miserable sinner. You see, when I call you a miserable sinner, those of you that have been walking with Christ for a while, they, they give me an amen or a high five virtually. Those of you that perhaps are new to all this, you put your hands on your hip and look very indignant at your computer. How dare he say that I'm a miserable sinner? I, I think I do a pretty good job. I'm not that bad. It's okay. If you're interested in making this all work out, you'll join the rest of us over on the miserable sinner's bench. You see, once you really start seeing Jesus in all his beauty, you're going to notice your own ugliness. And the problem with that is, at some point, you're going to want to get rid of the old you completely. You're going to desperately want to make yourself new for his sake. But you know what? Not even desperately wanting to change yourself is going to make any bit of difference. It's not going to work. You're not capable. 
Now, this part may surprise you, but wanting to change yourself, listen to me, is actually one of the most insidious forms of sin. Straight from the devil. He's going to tell you, you know, you should look at how wonderful Jesus is. He doesn't mind telling you that. He knows it too, and he doesn't mind acknowledging it, especially if it's going to drag you into hell. Or at least slow down your progress, prevent you from pulling others out of hell. He's going to say, look at how perfect Jesus is, and then look at yourself. You're miserable. You're a nothing. You should really do something about that. He's going to tell you that. And you're going to fall for it. You're going to say, you know what? I do need to change. I do need to make myself better. Even though I wasn't strong enough to make myself saved, I'm at least going to try to make myself better. And I know I can do it. And I'm going to do it for his sake. That's a sin. Now, Listen to me. This is not a guilt message. Though you're a sinner, sinning simply means to fall short of God's ideal. When you're trying to change yourself, you're falling short. You're sinning. You're falling short of God's ideal for you. You see, God wants you to change as much or more than you. But he knows And he tells us that he has to change us because he says we can't. And we must believe that. Not accepting that he has to do the changing is falling short of his ideal. And even wanting that to be different, regardless of the sincerity in your heart, failure is the only possible outcome. You can only fail if you now try to change yourself. Wanting to change ain't gonna make it happen. Let me illustrate with something similar. Say, for instance, my wonderful buddy and nephew, Connor, and I decide to go up to the park. We hop in the car and head out. We're driving along, having a nice time. Then all of a sudden we get a flat tire. Now I can imagine we Connor, who is a very bright, very intelligent nine-year-old boy, leaning over to me and saying, Uncle John, I want to fix the tire. He may jump up and down and declare, I can do it, I can do it. Connor may desperately want to fix that flat but that's not going to get it fixed. It doesn't matter how much he wants to. He's simply incapable, in this case, physically incapable of doing so. He doesn't have what it takes to get it done. You and I were not created to be sinners. Therefore, we are ill-equipped to fix our sinning nature. Now that we are sinners, there's nothing in our nature that can make us not sinners. We are not capable of it. We were not given the tools to make ourselves better. From the very beginning of our creation, we were meant to rely on God for all of our progress, all of it. 
And in the beginning, we weren't meant to fight that. We never thought of fighting it. Adam never thought in the very, very beginning to improve himself. It was the devil who came along and convinced him that he could be better and that he had the power to do that. That's the beginning of all of sin. When mankind turned away from the power and capability of God to his own incapability and ill power, and everything in nature now suffers because of it. Let's not go back there. Connor may really want to change the tire. And even when I say, don't worry, buddy, I'll take care of it, he's going to feel bad and probably a little embarrassed. He may even feel less of himself. But he isn't aware of what it takes to change a tire. And after a few hours of me allowing him to try to change the flat tire in the hot sun, he's going to suffer, and so am I. And that suffering will never end unless I step in and fix that flat. Have I taken my little analogy to its logical end point? Listen, you may want to become a new creature, but you're not a creator. God's a creator. And you have to be a new creature for all of this to work out. Sure, you want to, and you think you can, but that's only because you're misinformed. The devil and the church have so conditioned us into thinking that we're so unworthy of Christ's love that somehow we can't even approach him until we're better. That's foolishness. Well, technically, that's half right. We are unworthy of Christ's love. But all of our efforts can't change that. And listen, I know how hard that is to accept, but accept in faith we must. Not only is trying to fix ourselves the opposite of what God has commanded, but it's also fruitless and will always be fruitless. Connor will not be able to fix that tire. Many, many Christians have this deep abiding desire to fix themselves in some misguided notion that they can get closer to God in their efforts. And when they do so, all they find is frustration and failure. And that, listen to me, and that happens without exception. There has never been a successful Christian fixer. No one has ever been able to fix themselves or anyone else for that matter, except for Christ. Everyone tries to shine themselves up for the arrival of the bridegroom. Again, it's not 
their fault. They've been taught wrong, either from the pulpit or from the pew. They've been told that they must make themselves worthy before Christ will come, and you know I'm right. Someone along the line has told you that you've got to be better before Christ is going to love you. Nowhere in the gospel. In fact, you can actually keep Jesus out of your heart by thinking you can change yourself. Now, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say change wasn't possible. I've been spending the last few minutes telling you that you will change. I'm just telling you that you can't change yourself. John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, listen to this, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can become a different person, a changed person, but only by the efforts of God, not by the efforts of self. Change is the natural outcome of fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Just like being in the sunlight is going to change your skin's cell structure, being in proximity to God is going to change your soul structure. It's a process. And that process, by the way, actually has a name. It's called sanctification. 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The change that you're seeking, the change that you're desiring. And the change that will actually come will be through the result of the Holy Spirit working in your life, not you working in your life. The Holy Spirit is working in your life because Christ sent him to you. It's a part of this process. It's a part of God's plan. God sent his son to save you. The son sent the spirit to change you. It's You can't stop any part of that process. You cannot be changed without salvation, and you will not change without the Holy Spirit. You need the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's God's plan. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. John 16, 7. The Holy Spirit is working in your life because Christ sent him to you. It's a part of God's plan. You can't skip that step. You can't sit down once you've been saved in the heavenly bus terminal waiting for your ticket to heaven. It doesn't work that way. Salvation is a part of the process as much as sanctification is. You must change in order to be useful to God, and that's the purpose of your life. You've been given life so that God could save you and use you to save others.
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. That Comforter is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been sent to you by the Lord, and it is he that is changing you, sanctifying you. It's a part of his process. It's his job. Maybe it's time for a definition. According to Webster's Dictionary, this English word sanctify means to cleanse, purify, or make holy. Now we're going to cover sanctify and sanctification in a little more detail a little bit later, but I want you to understand two things quickly because they're related to our present line of discussion. First of all, it's obvious from this quick definition and from that by the way that verse from first peter that the object that's being sanctified the object that's being made clean pure or holy is not doing so of itself there's no self-cleaning function on these impure objects that's obvious from the word choice and sentence structure it is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in your life, that's making all the changes. You want to know why you feel different? It's not because of you. It's because you are being changed by the Holy Spirit. He is sanctifying you. He is making you clean. He is making you pure. He is making you holy. Why do you think that what once made you happy, you now think is sinful? You are being changed. That's why you feel different in yourself. It's happening to you, but you're not the one making it happen. That's why this is so weird. You're just a witness to it. If you were responsible, arguably, you wouldn't feel different because you'd be in charge of the pace extent and character of the change it would be your own plans taking effect if i built the shed out back it wouldn't surprise me to see it it might surprise catherine because she wasn't the one who built it does that make sense your nature has been made clean and it surprises you it has been purified and it surprises you because you didn't know anything about it. You may have known it was coming because you read about it in God's word, but you didn't know how, when, or what until after it happened to you. That's part of this inability for us to boast. Paul says we can't boast. We can only boast in Christ because we had nothing to do with it. My shiny Ford in the driveway can't boast of being a shiny Ford because it was the guys at the car wash that made it shiny. Look at me. I'm a shiny Ford. Someone's going to say, yeah, you're shiny because of Richboro Car Wash, not because of you. Now, I just want to make sure that you and I are not absolutely outside of the process. We do have some responsibility in all of this. To be sure, 
you're not the changer, but you do have a role. As we're fond of saying around here, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not going to force the change on you. He's not going to manipulate you. He's not going to harass you. That's the devil's way of changing people. In the work of the Holy Spirit, you have to be a willing participant. If you resist that change, yes, it's going to make you suffer, but it's you making you suffer, not the Holy Spirit. He's not going to force this on you. You have to want to do this willingly. And, and, I, and I've, as I've inferred, this is not going to be easy. You've been rescued from a very persistent enemy, yourself. You've made a jailbreak from your flesh, controlled by the devil, of course. And your flesh isn't going to go quietly. Part of your responsibility in your sanctification is to recognize all of that. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Those are the words of our Lord. Listen to Paul, Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. The flesh is your old nature. The flesh referred to in those two passages is your old self, the thing that you've been changed from. Sometimes the Bible calls that the old man. And it's going to battle to regain control. And it's going to want to undo all of this change. Don't let it. The world, the devil, and your flesh is going to want you to change back. Not so that you lose your salvation. That's not going to happen. The flesh and the world and the devil are going to try to undo all this change so you don't affect others. So they don't see that change in you and wonder where it came from. So that they don't see the change in you and say, hey, how come you're so different? And you say, because I found Christ. They don't want to take the chance. The flesh and the world and the devil don't want you being a witness for Christ in your action and in your words. You must recognize that. You must recognize that you've been rescued and that you're no longer the same person and you have to embrace and protect your change. That's your responsibility in all of this. It's your job to nurture and help that grow. So that's the first place that you're going to notice that you're different. You're going to notice that you're different in yourself. Now, the other way we said at the beginning, we're going to notice our difference, our change, is how we are in comparison or in reflection with others. When we observe how others go through life, we can see how different is it is to how we go through life now that Christ is in control. Now, before I go any further, 
Let me make sure you understand. Let me make sure to give you a warning. We have to be careful. We are indeed different. But as I said earlier, we can't gloat. Not in ourselves. We had nothing to do with this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No boasting allowed. But the fact remains, we're different. And we will most notice this with those in our immediate circle, perhaps mostly with those we've known a very long time, even those we've known a whole lifetime. Listen to me. One of the saddest truths is very often the differences that you notice are most recognizable among those that you're actually physically related to, to your family. You're going to notice how different you are when you see your unsaved family members. And at first, it may come as a surprise. Like you may think, oh my gosh, I haven't seen that person in so long and I feel so different from them. It's going to surprise you, but it shouldn't. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Once we accept Christ, we are actually new creatures. New creatures born into a different family. Now, we may look the same. That's only because we're awaiting the physical change, the actual change in our bodies, and that's coming too. Our bodies will be physically changed. Will we look the same? I don't know. One thing I do know, we will be changed. Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, it's going to be like that. Do you hear that? It'll be that quick. And by the way, all this change is because we're new creatures. We are actually new creatures. The new creation that we become as a result of Christ in us has the real effect of making us different from just about everyone else in our lives. We become strangers where we were once residents. Now, remember that word sanctify we talked about just a moment ago? Well, the English word sanctify was originally the Greek word hagiadzo. The translators took the word hagiadzo and put the word sanctify there. Now, the English language dictionary, as we just mentioned, says that sanctify means to make clean or render pure. Well, how does that definition stack up against the definition of the original word hagiadzo? In other words, let's see how well the translators did. Let's turn to the complete word study dictionary. Hagiadzo, according to this Greek language academic source, the complete word study dictionary, hagiadzo means to make clean, render pure. Now that's a rare exact match. But if we continue to read the definition in the complete word 
study dictionary, we'll discover even more. Hagiadzo. Remember, that's the Greek equivalent of our word sanctify. Hagiadzo, besides meaning to make clean, to render pure, also means, now listen very carefully, it means to consecrate, devote, set apart from a common to a sacred use. To some of you, this is review. You want to know why you feel so different from those around you? You've been set apart. You have been taken out of the common use, the way the complete word study dictionary refers to it, and placed where you can be of a sacred use. You're no longer working for the world's common ends, which is destruction. You now have been taken out, set apart for a sacred use, but which belongs to God, and God will be using you for his sacred holy purposes. That's why you're different. You have to be. You can't be among the world crowd and do God's sacred use. Remember we said the flesh and the spirit are at war. You have to be removed from the part of the human race that focuses on the flesh, and that's a pretty large piece. And you have to be placed over here where the focus is on spiritual things. You have been set apart for spiritual, sacred, holy things. That's why you feel different. Those around you, more than likely, are still for common use. But you're different. And again, don't get cocky. I repeat what I said earlier. This isn't something you can boast about. You didn't do any of this. We've been very careful to point out all of these verses that show it was God's Spirit. It was God's doing that made you, that placed you, that set you apart for these sacred things. That should make you shudder. Your sanctification should give you such a sense of humility that all you want to do is lie flat on your face and praise God that he sanctified you, chosen you, set you apart. Now, related to this Greek word hagiadzo is the word hagios. You know what English word that hagios gets translated into? Holy. And sometimes saint. Sanctify is related to being holy. God has not only sanctified you, but he has made you holy. God has made you a saint. Now, again, before you go putting in your order for your halo fitting, you should realize that hagios at its root simply means that you've been made an object dedicated or devoted to a purpose. And since it's God that made you holy, you are dedicated to his purposes. I know this is all sort of a repeat pattern in this lesson because this is God's plan. When he saved you, he meant to set you apart so that he can now use you to save others, to help him save others, and for other purposes that are eternal that we know nothing about. I honestly believe when the New Jerusalem is 
set up, when the millennium is finally over, when every tear shall be wiped away, as it says in Revelation, I believe the real work begins then. I don't know what that work entails, but God's just not giving you a place that you can lounge back in. There's work to be done. That's God's nature. Does Scripture tell you that, John? No. I'm just guessing. Just makes more sense to me than just sitting around doing nothing for eternity. Nevertheless, the Bible tells us that we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price for a purpose. We're no longer going our own way or the world's way. We are going God's way. And that's what makes us different. We've been set apart. We've been dedicated to God's purposes. The world keeps seeking its own pleasure and its own purposes. When we were in the world, when you and I were in the world, before we were made new creatures, that's what we did. We sought only our own pleasure. But now, all of that is different. Peter says, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter just called you peculiar. Now, nowadays, this word peculiar has taken on a different connotation. We say someone is peculiar when we really want to say they're weird. Well, Peter isn't saying you're weird. You may be weird, but that's not what Peter is trying to say. The English word peculiar is translating the Greek word peripoiesis. Peripoiesis is an adjective that comes from the verb peripoiemai. Peripoiemai, which means, I know that I slaughtered the Greek translation. You Greek speakers will have to forgive me. I'm doing my best. But peripoiemai means to acquire or to purchase. Therefore, the phrase peripoiesis people, peculiar people, are really a possessed people, a purchased people, people that belong to someone else due to some sort of transaction. That's the word that Peter purposely used to describe you and me. We're peculiar. We're purchased. We've been acquired. A payment has occurred that changed our status to peripoiesis people. You got that? We are a purchased people, an acquired people. We are a people who are a possession because a price has been paid for us. That transaction occurred on Calvary. You were given to God as his possession when Christ paid the price for you. Does that make sense? Now, we, as purchased, owned, acquired, peculiar people, have been sanctified. We've been set apart. We've been purchased for a reason. We've been separated by our new owner, and we should be seeking the pleasure of him who purchased us. We don't belong here anymore. We shouldn't be seeking the praise of men. We should not be seeking the treasures of the world. Nothing wrong with being rich. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. 
There's nothing wrong with being popular for the right reasons. That's not what I'm talking about. We shouldn't be seeking that. That should not be our motivation. Dwight L. Moody was very popular. He couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed, but he was popular because he was changing lives through the preaching of the gospel. That's a good popularity. People wanted to hear him preach. They were busting the doors out to hear Dwight Moody speak. Nothing wrong with that. And by the way, Dwight Moody got pretty rich through that process. But you know what he did with that money? He printed Bibles and Psalm books, hymnals. Nothing wrong with being rich and popular as long as you're continuing to use those things for God's purposes because you've been set apart. And if you become rich and popular because of what God has set you apart for, your job is to use the resources that he gave you through that process. Listen, we're no longer members in the world club. We are members of the heaven club. We must begin to live like it. As Paul puts it in the letter to the Philippians, our conversation is in heaven. Now that word conversation is a bit confusing. The Greek word is polichuma, which means our citizenship. Now, once again, I sort of want to point out to you that we're constantly going to the original languages so we can gain a better understanding of what God is trying to tell us. It's better to go to the original sources, the original mind that the, the original idea that was written down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we have to go to the original languages. For the New Testament, that means we have to look at the Greek. For the Old Testament, that means we look mostly at the Hebrew, but sometimes other languages like Aramaic. Now, one of the criticisms of the Bible is that it is at times hard to understand. I get that. I actually agree with that. It's also very difficult to mine silver or diamonds. It takes work. It takes work to find that treasure. It's not laying on the surface. Sometimes it takes hard work to dig out the treasures of Scripture. Now, even though the King James is a very fine piece of work, it's still a translation. And because of that, we have to go around it to find the fullest meaning, the original thought, as I said a moment ago, as best we can of the inspired writer. Sometimes a certain translation will actually use language common at the time of the construction of that translation. The King James, the original King James, what was once called the authorized version, was originally published in the 17th century. And even though it's written in English, a lot of the content seems foreign to many of us here in the 21st century. Well, the reason for that is because the English language has changed since then. 
In the original King James, there are lots of these and thous and wists and wats, words we don't use anymore, except maybe at Renaissance fairs. Today, we use different words to mean the same thing as some of those words from the early part of the 1600s. In fact, sometimes we use the same words as they did back then, but now in completely, sometimes vastly different ways. That's why Philippians 3, as it is found in the authorized version, is a bit confusing. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we go to a modern version of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, we'll find this word conversation defined as follows. Oral exchange of sentiments, observations, opinions, or ideas. You know that. You're a modern English-speaking person. That's what conversation means to you. You feel like Webster's Dictionary is correct when it says that conversation means oral exchange of sentiments, observations, opinions, or ideas. That's how we use that word today. So based on that modern definition, it seems out of place in Philippians 3.20. Why is the word conversation there, you may think? Well, I happen to have, by the way, an, also an electronic version of Webster's Dictionary from 1828, closer to when the King James was written. Listen to what the definition of the word was back then in 1828. In, the, in those days, conversation meant, listen to this, conversation meant general course of manners, behavior, deportment, especially as it respects morals. That makes a little bit more sense as it relates to Philippians 3.20, for our conversation is in heaven. Now, this is why we spend so much time going back and forth between languages. If we don't, we may not see precisely what God is saying, and precision is what we should be seeking. Got it? So let's keep moving. Now, we just said a moment ago that the word conversation there in Philippians 3.20 translates the Greek word polichema, which in the Greek means citizenship. Now, that sort of blows our mind, doesn't it? Conversation and citizenship meant the same thing in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century to English speakers. However, we here in the 21st century are only confused. We think Paul is saying we shouldn't swear, I guess. Our conversation is in heaven. Oh, that means I shouldn't cuss, as my wife's family would say. That we're only to use nice words when we talk. That's what, that's what Paul must have meant here when he was saying to the, the church at Philippi for our conversation is in heaven. Okay, Paul, got it. No swearing. That's, that must be what heavenly conversation actually is. That's what it means to us today. But that isn't what Paul meant. He said our citizenship is in heaven. Well, okay, but that's only slightly clearer. So we have to look even closer. Our citizenship in this sense is another way of saying 
how we carry ourselves, how we behave, our manners, our culture. Perhaps you're as old as I am, and you remember that in elementary school, we would actually receive a grade for what was then called our citizenship. Remember that? Our citizenship grade, was it not a measurement of how we conducted ourselves in school? If you got a C in citizenship, that means you weren't acting very nicely in school, and your mama's going to paddle you back when mama's paddled their children. You see, your teachers would see your citizenship as a reflection of who you were, of how you were raised, and they would grade you accordingly. You got a C in citizenship? That's not how I raised you. Right? You've heard that if you're as old as I am. Your citizenship grade is a measurement of what and how well you were taught. Your citizenship is, listen to me, is a reflection of who you belong to. It's a reflection of your culture. Good citizenship in school was a direct reflection of your family values. You belong to a family you're going to act the way the family acts. It's your culture. It's your citizenship. It's how you belong. You will, be, you will behave based on what you've been exposed to. That's your citizenship. Put another way, as a citizen of the United States, you value freedom because that's what you've been exposed to, and it will show itself in how you carry yourself. I grew up a citizen of the state of Michigan. Michigan is and was an industrial state where people valued physical labor. The citizens of Michigan behave as if working hard for something physically is beneficial. Am I making my point? That's citizenship. That's conversation to somebody in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. That's polichema to someone who was raised where Greek is the primary language. Polichema for our conversation, our citizenship, our polichema is in heaven. For us Christians, and by that, I mean those that have given their life to Christ in faith, those that are nurturing the relationship with the Holy Spirit, for those that belong to him, have been purchased by him, are owned by him, are being changed by him, for those of us that belong to him, our citizenship is in heaven. If heaven gave out passports, Ours would say citizens of heaven. Did you hear me? We are citizens of another world. We're not citizens of this world. Yes, we have to live here for now. I don't know why, but God says so. We do live here for now, but our official status is that of colonist. We Christians are here making a colony of heaven. 
That's why we feel different. We're citizens of another land. We don't belong here. Sure, we have to live here, but we're really not at home. Now, let's be very careful with this point. Although we are different from them, we are called to love our neighbors all the more. It's a part of our foreign nature, our citizenship, our conversation, our polychema to love others regardless of whether they are fellow colonists or not. Our conversation in heaven, our conversation, citizenship, polychema, how we behave is that we love everyone, whether they're a colonist like we are or not. In fact, we're in the business of convincing the citizens of this world, the residents of this world, to join our little band. We, like our leader Jesus, want to extend a welcoming hand of love to those outside of our camp. But unfortunately, that's not how the world looks back at us. Much like we see happening to immigrants all over the world, we citizens of heaven are very often looked on cruelly by the residents of the world. And Jesus explained why. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Those are the words of Jesus explaining why the world is so intolerant of us. That was John 15, 19. Jesus has chosen us out of this world. He made us foreigners, and because of that, we are hated. We are treated as an enemy. And what is it that Jesus tells us about enemies? How are we, as our conversation, our heavenly conversation, our heavenly citizenship, how does that show itself? By loving our enemies. They may not love us, has nothing to do with it. Their conversation is of this world. Their normal way of doing things is to hate foreigners, is to hate their enemies. Our conversation, our citizenship, our culture, the way we carry ourselves is we love our enemies regardless of how they feel about us. We're different. I know that's tough. I know how hard that is. I know how hard it is to be a stranger among a hostile native population. It's one of the most frightening experiences you'll ever have. And unfortunately, for many of us, there are very few fellow citizens of heaven around us, and that can be lonely. Very often we get tempted to rejoin the native population. The pressure of the loneliness of a citizen of heaven can be overwhelming. 
we may find ourselves saying, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Psalm 137.4, that was the Israelites. That's what they said when they were taken into captivity. They were in a foreign land and they said, we just can't get into this. How, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? We may feel that way too, but we're called to praise God no matter what. Even though sometimes our isolation from our true home makes that seem difficult. We must hang in. We, like Paul, must press on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14. You've heard me say this many times. This is a tough trip. Nowhere in God's word does he promise a trouble-free life. In fact, he clearly indicates that there are going to be trials, tribulations, temptations, and hatred. But never forget, as our owner, as the one who purchased us, he has also obligated himself to provide. He is our helper by virtue of the fact that he purchased us. He acquired us. We are his possession. When he did all of that, when he purchased us, it came with the obligation of providing, and God never turns his back on his obligations. Live your life knowing that you belong somewhere else. Live your life embracing the change that's made all the difference. Yes, we have to be here for a time, but never forget, even though this is not our home, we're not alone. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.